Well, we come to the second letter, and I have called this the church that is afflicted but affluent. And we better read the letter and then all will be revealed. It's addressed to the messenger of the church in Smyrna, and this is how it reads. This is a message from the one who is both the first and the last, who was dead and came to life again. I know how hard-pressed you've been, and of your material poverty, though I see you as spiritually prosperous. I know how those who call themselves Jews have reviled and slandered you. I don't regard them as Jews, but a synagogue presided over by Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I'd better tell you that the devil will manage to get some of your members thrown into prison where your faith will be sorely tested, but it will only be a ten-day ordeal. Even if you have to die for me, I'll reward you with the crown of life again, and life forever. Let everyone who hears these letters read, take heed to what my spirit is communicating to all seven churches. Anyone who stays on top will not even be touched by the second death of hell. So we've moved 35 miles north of Ephesus to Smyrna. Ephesus' main rival, these two ports, vied with one another to be the chief city of Asia. It would be the next stop on a clockwise circuit, Ephesus, next stop, Smyrna. There are four things we need to know about this city. First, it was a beautiful city, very beautiful. Indeed, they were given various titles, the pride of Asia and the glory of Asia. So it was a city of much pride, founded 1000 BC, destroyed again just over 500 years later. So the city itself had died and come to life again because it was rebuilt some 300 years after it was destroyed. So here was a city that was dead and is alive again, a phrase that actually comes into the letter. When it was rebuilt as a Greek colony, it was in fact a model of town planning, very carefully planned and built. And running down the center was a street which they called the Golden Street, packed with temples all the way down. There's not much left of that uh, city, just really a row of pillars of the agora or the marketplace. That's the only thing that's really survived because it's a live city, unlike Ephesus, which is now dead. This is the second largest city in Turkey after Istanbul and a very, very busy port, university town as well. Towering above the old part of the city down here, towering up here is a magnificent hill called the Crown of Smyrna. Everybody knows what you mean if you say the crown. Interesting that that word too is picked up by Jesus here. I will give you the crown. And on top there is a fortress today, an old fortress, and uh, you'll see that on the video as well. So it's busy city, a beautiful city, crowned by this hill. Secondly, it is a very wealthy city. It still is. All the trade comes in through this port from the west. Magnificent harbour, 
I've told you we saw the navy there. The river Hermas has in fact silted up quite a lot of the river, but it's still left this huge, magnificent harbour with a narrow opening to the sea. So an ideal harbour, reminiscent a bit of Portsmouth in our country. Very cultured city, that's the third thing I want to say, very cultured. An attractive climate, unusually for Turkey, but it has one natural feature which uh, makes it a very desirable place to live, and that is during the hot summer, the westerly breeze, which they call the zephyr, comes right up that harbour and keeps the city cool, much cooler than any other city uh, in this part of Turkey. And so it is a very pleasant place to live, prosperous and pleasant, very cultured. You used to have a big stadium and the library and the largest theatre. It was the birthplace of the poet Homer, and there's still a monument of Homer in the city. But the most important thing to say about this city is that it was very patriotic. Mind you, that was good for business. Nevertheless, it always chose the right side in every war that swept through this uh, area. And if you can choose the right side in any war, choose the victor's side you're in. And so when the Greeks won, they became a very Greek city. When the Romans won, they became a very Roman city. And particularly at the time of writing, it was... Um, a, a very patriotic city to the Roman Empire and therefore to emperor worship. And indeed one of the first temples, indeed the first temple in Asia to be built to the goddess Roma. Long before emperors were worshipped, there was a goddess of the Roman Empire called Roma. And the very first temple to Roma was built here in Smyrna. It's called a paradise of municipal vanity. What a phrase. And it loved giving honours, the freedom of the city to people. An honour to be a free citizen of this city. 26 AD, it was the only city in Asia allowed to build a temple for the Roman emperor to be worshipped. In this case, it was the emperor Tiberius. And the only city that Rome would grant the privilege of erecting a temple to Tiberius was Smyrna. Now, all this is building up a picture. Its loyalty was proverbial. Not to participate in all this was considered treason. A city that was so full of civic pride and imperial loyalty, well, in that city, if you didn't go along with all that, then you were considered a traitor. Caesar worship had started quite informally. It didn't start with the emperor saying, I want to be worshipped. It started with people worshipping him. As people today worship pop stars and all kinds of other people. They worship them. Some people used to worship royalty. You know, giving them a place of adoration and putting them on a pedestal in their hearts. That's how emperor worship began. Quite spontaneously from the people, but the emperors then took it up and made it official. It became an established religion. Such a little thing to do, to say Caesar is Lord and burn a pinch of incest, but it could cost you your life. And Smyrna is a suffering church. What do we know about the church? Nothing. It was probably founded 40 years before this letter came. Converts from Ephesus came to the rival city of Smyrna further up the coast. One tradition, actually, quite a strong tradition, is that Paul spent a night there. 
that on his last journey south, on his way to Ephesus, he stayed in Smyrna because Timothy's brother had a house there. Timothy's brother lived there and so Paul apparently stayed a night, but that's the only link we know. What we do have is records of a man called Polycarp, who was ultimately the pastor, or as they then called him, bishop in Smyrna, and we'll say more about him later. One of the greatest stories of Christian martyrdom in all church history is the martyrdom of Polycarp. From beginning to end, the story of this church is a story of a church that suffered, that paid a price. So let's look further into the letter. Very interesting how Jesus describes himself. It seems as if Jesus chooses some aspect of his personality or character, either that will strengthen that church and comfort them, or which is something the church has come to forget or overlook, which they need to remember. I don't know which. But each title is appropriate to that church. Do you know how many names and titles Jesus has? The answer is 250. Nobody in the whole of history has ever had so many names and titles. And it's a very good exercise to write them out for yourself. Most Christians can get as far as 30 or 35, and then they get stuck. But Jesus actually has 250. And if you want to see Jesus in, as a whole, if you want to get a fully balanced picture, you need to think about all those titles. But to each church, Jesus says, this is the aspect of me that I, I want you to think about that is most important for you to realize. And he gives himself two titles here. Number one, I am the first and the last. I began it all and I'll finish it all off. He is saying this really related to the history of the human race. I was there at the beginning. I was, I'll be there at the end. I started it all off and I will end it all. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the first and the last. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. In other words, get a bigger view of me. Some people just think of Jesus as somebody who was around for 33 years. That's a very inadequate picture. That would be the most that an unbeliever could think about. But to the church, he is the first and the last. All the way through, it's Jesus. It's the Christ. It's the Lord. And that's going to be very important. Long before the Roman Empire came, Jesus was there. And long after the Roman Empire's decline and fall, he's still be there. And empires rise and fall. They wax and wane. They come and go. There have been 21 major civilizations on planet Earth. And they've all come and gone exactly the same way. And in fact, you can tell where a civilization is on the curve. Do you know how? by the quality of metal in their coins. When a civilization is on the up, the coins get better and better quality. But when it's on the way out, the coins become cheaper and cheaper alloy of metals. It was uh, a professor of metallurgy, a lovely Christian in Guildford University, who told me that, and he'd made a special study of it. And he found that you can actually trace the rise and fall of every civilization and empire by its coins. And if you just take out the coins in your pocket, you'll find where we are at the moment. <laughs> but all these civilizations, 21 of them, have come and gone. And Jesus has been there all the time. He was there before they all rose, and he'll be there after they're all gone. That's the meaning of first and last. It's exciting. 
Second, he said, I was dead and I came to life again. Now, I told you the city did. Interesting that about every other human being, you have to put it the other way around and say he was alive and is now dead. Everybody else is like that. Muhammad was alive and he's dead. Confucius was alive and he's dead. Buddha was alive and he's dead. Napoleon was alive and he's dead. Hitler was alive and he's dead. About everybody else you say that. There's only one person you can say he was dead and he's alive. That's Jesus. That puts him in a unique category all by himself. But why is he saying it to them? To tell them death isn't the worst thing that can happen to you. It's not the end. So don't be afraid of it. I was dead. But look, I'm alive. And that should take all the sting of death away from you. Well, he speaks from experience as well as with authority. I've been through it. I've died. I know what it's like. And I'm alive. So I know. Now he moves to approval. And three times he says here, I know, I know, I know. And there are two meanings of that. You can either say it means I know about your suffering or it can mean I know your suffering firsthand because I've been through it. I know what you're going through. If you say that, it can have a double meaning. Do you follow me? It can either mean I know all about your problem and I sympathize with it or it means I've been through it myself. And I'm sure here Jesus means it the second way, maybe both ways, but certainly the second way. I've suffered. I know it. I know what you're going through. It's an expression of profound empathy with them. They have been afflicted in two ways. And he spells it out. First way, they've been afflicted financially. They're living in a wealthy city and yet they are among the poorest of the poor. The word he uses for poverty is, is the lowest. It's, it's beggary, it's destitution. They are destitute, they have nothing. They are the poorest of the poor in the wealthiest city. Now either that means they were poor when they began to be Christians and there is a truth in that because it's always easier for poor people to enter the kingdom than rich people. And therefore the church all along has had greater numbers of the poor in its membership. Read 1 Corinthians 1. Not many noble, not many wise. It's, it's the poor people who welcome the gospel. Jesus said it to the Pharisees. He said the poor seize the kingdom by force. They grab it. They've got nothing else to grab. This is their only hope, so they grab it. And it may mean that, but it also, clearly, since he puts it in the word affliction, it means that they were rich but became poor because they became a Christian. And that is very understandable in that situation. Don't believe those who say it always pays to be a Christian. It doesn't always pay to be a Christian. Let's be honest about it. They were living a reduced standard of living because they'd belonged to Christ. There is a prosperity teaching, which I'm sure you must have heard, which is naive. In my Bible, faith can leave you living in caves and dressed in rags, according to Hebrews 11. Amen. It may be that God chooses to prosper some whom he can trust with money. But it is not true to say that if you become a Christian, you'll be better off financially. 
And the Christians here clearly were very much worse off. It had cost them. And they were now literally beggars in a wealthy city. Because as I've already told you, so much of the trade in those cities was tied up with pagan religion. You had to belong to a trade guild, as it's called. That's a cross between a chamber of commerce and a trade union. And it had its religious ceremonies, which you had to go through. And you couldn't get business, and people wouldn't do business with you if you didn't belong. I would cite Freemasonry today as something similar. It has its religious side, and a man can suffer if he comes out of that. I've known people who have done. Now, in the same way, these Christians in Smyrna would lose business if they became Christians. And they would have to leave, the, especially the dinners. I want to mention this particularly because it comes up again in Pergamum and Thyatira. These trade guilds used to have dinners. Now, what's wrong with attending a trade dinner? Well, just this, before they could eat, they went through a religious ceremony. Some trade dinners today may ask the local chaplain to say grace or something, but they went through a complete rigmarole and offered sacrifice to idols before you had the dinner. So there was idolatry before you got your meal, and there was immorality after you got your meal, because after they'd had their fill of wine, and this was a wine-growing area, then uh, old Dionysius used to get to work, and it easily became an orgy, and the girls were brought in after the dinner. Now, in that kind of setting, how does a Christian businessman behave? Does he go to the dinner? Does he go after the idolatry at the beginning? And does he leave before the immorality at the end? Or does he stay away altogether? Or you can understand the pressure. And they were paying for it. And so poverty was one of the ways they were afflicted. The other way was slander. And particularly by the Jews. Now, I want to explain something about Jews in that world at that time. Every religion had to be registered with the Roman authorities. And once you got registered, you became a religio licita. But if you couldn't get registration, you were a religio illicita, or an illegal sect. And therefore, you were not protected by law, and anybody could take advantage of that. And persecution would not be punished. Now the Jews had managed to get registration in spite of the fact that they refused to worship the emperor. But it was here in Asia that they got immunity from that law. And it then spread right through the Jewish dispersion or diaspora. So the Jews were registered but didn't have to worship the emperor. Now when the Christians came along, at first they were largely Jewish. And so they were able to, as it were, be covered by the Jewish registration. But then, when the local Jews realized these Christians were, were more than just Jews, and in fact were inviting Gentiles to believe in the Christ, they became irritated. And they had a unique weapon. They could report Christians, they are not Jewish. They're not of us. And therefore, they are an illegal religion. And uh, that was how Christians began to suffer from the Roman authorities. If you read the book of Acts, you'll notice how often it is that it was the Jews who made things difficult for Paul. And indeed, the whole of Luke's Gospel and the whole of Acts were probably written as a brief for the lawyer defending Paul at his trial in Rome. Both books show that Christ and Paul, his follower, 
were accepted by Romans, even Roman soldiers everywhere, but were, it was always the Jews who stirred up the civic trouble for them. That's what happened at Ephesus and the riot in Ephesus for Paul, and here it clearly was happening in Smyrna. Now, unfortunately, as soon as the church got power under Constantine, ever since, the church has taken its revenge and been anti-Semitic and given the Jews back what they did. But we mustn't forget that it was the Jews originally, some of them. Jesus was a Jew. All the apostles were Jews. Most of the early church was Jews. But nevertheless, there was anti-Christianism before there was anti-Semitism. And we just need to get that perspective right. So, they were slandered. Uh, they were betrayed. They, they were betrayed to the authorities by Jews who didn't like them. And Jesus disowns them. Now, these are his own countrymen, remember. And Jesus says, I don't call them Jews. He said, their synagogue is presided over by Satan. Now, Jesus had said that during his life. If you read John 8... It's one of the most uh, stirring debates Jesus had with the Jews of Jerusalem. And they said, God is our father. And he said, he's not. If God was your father, you would love me. I'm his son. But actually, he said, your father is the devil. And that's why you tell lies about me, because he said, lies are the devil's native language. Very interesting word. Indeed, the devil's name is slanderer. Diabolos is slanderer. And so the devil is the father of lies. And clearly the Jews were telling lies about the Christians to try and get the authorities to ban them. And that's a difficult sort of hostility to bear. Now listen to what Jesus says. He says first, you're the poorest of the poor, but in my sight you are the wealthy. You're the plutocrats of Smyrna. You are the richest people, not the poorest. Of course, not in money they weren't the richest, but in other things. And in fact, when you come to die, how much can you take with you? How rich will you be one minute after death? Because you've got to leave all your stocks and shares, all your pensions, all your bank balance. You've got to leave everything behind. Now, how, how rich will you be then? That's the perspective you need to get, because a shroud has no pocket. And when a multi-millionaire multi -millionaire died and someone asked how much did he leave, the answer was everything. See, the real test of your wealth is how much you're worth after you die. And the Smyrnans were fabulously wealthy. They'd got much treasure in heaven. Wealth is relative. Rich is a relative term. And Jesus first of all says, I know your poverty, but then he knew it personally. He never owned anything himself except his clothes. And those were gambled for and taken off him before he died. He knew poverty. He had nowhere to lay his head. He became poor. That through him we might become rich. And he says, you become rich through me. Don't think of yourselves as poor. You've lost nothing. That's reversing human verdicts. And then he says, and don't think that they're Jews. They're not. That's a synagogue of Satan. He says, get the right perspective on it. See things as I see them. Realize that you're fabulously wealthy and you will never lose the riches you've got. And realize that you are the chosen people of God, not them. Jesus is going to reverse human opinion all the way through these letters. He's going to tell rich people they're poor. He's going to tell poor people they're rich. He's going to tell a live church it's dead. <laughs> 
he reverses our opinion. He says, get your thinking straight and then you can cope with the situation you're in. But when you only think about your situation and not how Jesus sees it, you'll go under. If you only think of yourselves as poor and lied about, well, the one thing that then comes is self-pity. And there are few things more self-centered than self-pity. Get my angle on it, he says. See those poor Jews who call themselves Jews as in the grip of Satan. You'll pity them then. And see all those wealthy people and businessmen around you riding in their posh chariots. I nearly said Mercedes chariots, but riding around in their posh chariots. See all them as the real poor. That they've got nothing they can take with them. And then you'll get a better perspective. It's really quite a thing. But, he says, now, what do I have against you? And the answer is nothing. Oh, surely they weren't perfect. Nothing. All their troubles were external. There were no internal troubles. I find this a real insight into Christ. Of course they weren't perfect. They weren't entirely sanctified yet. They still had a long way to go. That doesn't bother Jesus. If they share his sufferings, they'll share his glory. A church that's suffering for Jesus, Jesus will not criticize. Interesting, isn't it? You're going through it. All he has are words of encouragement and help. Suffering only gets sympathy from Jesus. The church is nearest to Christ when it's sharing his sufferings. Which means that many churches in the third world are a good deal richer than many churches in our world. And the church in Smyrna today is a suffering church. But it's the only one that's still there. Isn't that interesting? There's not a church in any of the other six, but there is a church in Smyrna, and my wife and I had the privilege of having fellowship with them and ministering among them. I'll tell you a bit more about that later. Well, what's the advice? Strange comfort, really. Wouldn't you have thought that Jesus would have given them some prosperity teaching <laughs> to counteract their poverty? Wouldn't you have thought he would say, my servants should be rich if they had enough faith? He didn't say anything like that. He didn't even promise them any help in their suffering. And he certainly didn't promise that he would get them out of their suffering. Now we need to notice what Jesus doesn't say in the letters, as well as what he does. He didn't give them one word of practical relief from their suffering. Indeed, he goes one worse, he predicts more. I love the honesty of Jesus, don't you? He never told us that the way out of trouble is to follow him. He said it's the way into trouble. Have you ever heard these testimonies where people say, I came to Jesus and all my troubles were over? Have you heard that kind? I used to believe them. <laughs> I don't now. My testimony is simple. I came to Jesus in 1947 and my troubles began. Got baptized in the Spirit a few years later and my troubles got worse. And in the last few years I've been in more trouble than in the previous 30. But hallelujah, Jesus promised that. He said, in the world you'll have big trouble, but cheer up, I'm on top of it. 
I asked a friend some time ago, how are you? And he said, I'm very well over the circumstances. <laughs> now that's a Christian reply. But Jesus didn't say, I'm going to bring your suffering to an end or I'm going to help you through it. He said, there's more on the way. And the worst to come were three things. They had already lost money through becoming a Christian. They were now poor. They had lost their reputation because lies were being told about them. They're now to lose three more things. And Jesus, in all honesty, says, some of you are going to lose your freedom. You're going to go to prison for me. And the conditions in prison in those days were nothing to write home about. Believe me. Indeed, even today, there have been films made about uh, prison conditions in Turkey. Midnight Cowboy? No? Midnight Express, thank you. Well, some of you will face that, he said. Loss of freedom and bad conditions. Many early Christians saw the inside of a prison cell. Next, he said, the loss of security. There is going to be an intense period of persecution that you'll have to go through. He said, fortunately, it'll be brief, a 10-day wonder, but he said, it's coming. That phrase, 10 days, means, it's a kind of round phrase to mean it'll, it'll be some time, but it, it'll be brief. A 10-day ordeal. And thirdly, he said, it's going to mean loss of life, martyrdom. Some of you will die for me. Some of you will have to be faithful unto death. Now that little word unto doesn't mean until. He's not saying be faithful until you die, but be faithful to the point of having to die. The most precious thing we have, I suppose, is life itself. It's the thing we hang on to most. Self-preservation is a profound instinct in us. I remember saying to a saintly man, I'm not sure that I could die for Jesus. I'm not sure if I was thrown to the lions, whether I could go through with it. And he said something very wise. He said, David, if you're faithful in small ways now, he will give you the grace if the big thing comes. Get it right now. And so Jesus says, whoever's faithful to death, I'll give him the crown of life. The crown, that hill at the top there, the glory of Smyrna, the pride of Asia. He said, I'll give you a better crown than that, the crown of life. It's a wonderful assurance. And he says a favorite thing. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Well, I'm sure you realize that sounds like Jesus. Do you know that in this Bible, where is it? There are 366 times when it says, don't be afraid. That makes one for each year, day of the year, including leap year. But it was a favorite saying of Jesus. It was always saying it, don't be afraid. But the key here is this, don't be afraid now of what's coming. Because so often fear is anticipation. The, the worst fear is when you know what's going to happen and you're sort of thinking about it beforehand, right? Even just a little thing like a visit to the dentist. It's the beforehand. It's the fear that you can have now about what you know is coming. Or if you suddenly receive um, a notice that the hospital can do your surgery now, so come in next Tuesday. It's what happens between now and next Tuesday. Jesus says, don't be afraid now. I've told you what's going to happen. Prison, even martyrdom. But don't let that become a source of fear to you now. 
Don't be anxious about it. Don't be afraid of it. There is a contradiction between fear and faith. Mark's gospel brings it out more than any other. You can't be both at the same time. You can't be trusting and you can't be afraid. It's either fear or faith all the way through. The whole of Mark's gospel is how Jesus weaned the disciples from fear to faith. Don't be afraid, only believe. Fear and faith are incompatible. When we're afraid of something, especially anticipating it, it means that we're losing a little faith. He says fear is irrational. And you deal with fear by switching the light on. A child who's afraid of the dark, you just switch the light on and the fear will go when they see the thing in reality, in true perspective. That is the cure for fear of something. And here the cure is, fix your eyes on the crown of life. Then you don't fear death. See, Christianity is a way to die as well as a way to live. And uh, there was a man in Beckettsfield invited all his friends and relatives to come and stay with him when the doctor said his life could only last a few more days. And he wrote to them and said, come and see how a Christian dies. That's a challenge, isn't it? That's because the Christian's looking beyond, looking forward to something. And that's what he says here, switch the light on, see death as the way to the crown of life. It reminds me of Paul's last letter to Timothy. He said, I fought the fight, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith. Henceforth is laid up for me the crown of life. Looking forward, even Jesus himself coped with the cross. He despised the shame, he endured the cross. Why? For the joy that was set before him. He says, get this future perspective, look beyond martyrdom, look beyond prison, look beyond and see that crown and the fear will go. It becomes irrational. Now his assurance has both a positive and a negative side to it. The positive is, I'll give you the crown of life. The negative is, and you will not be hurt by the second death. You see, there's something even worse than death. The first death, well, it's difficult enough to think about and look forward to, but the second death, now that's the real thing. Jesus himself said to the apostles when he sent them out, don't be afraid of those who can kill your body and do nothing worse. Rather fear him who can throw body and soul into hell. That's the second death. There's much more about it at the end of Revelation. The one who overcomes can not only look forward to the crown of life, but can also be assured the second death will not touch them. That takes the sting of death away, because the real sting of death is actually the second death. The real sting of death is sin. The real sting that makes death something to be abhorred is that after death you will pay for your sins. That's the real sting. That the second death is beyond the first. And Jesus says you won't even be touched by it. Now it's he who overcomes. I'm afraid the church can't uh, do this for you. Each person has to settle this for themselves. And he who overcomes. Well... Smyrna today. Did the church respond to this letter? Yes, they did. And I must tell you about Polycarp, the so-called Bishop of Smyrna. He had known the Apostle John when he was a little boy. But he, that just dates him. But he lasted into the second century AD and became the leader of this church in Smyrna. But then he was betrayed and the church was so anxious not to lose him, they rushed him into hiding 
and they hid him in the country. But I'm afraid one church member who didn't like his ministry told the authorities where he was hiding. And they came and they arrested him. He actually cooked a meal for them and said, I'm sure you're hungry and thirsty, so let me get you something to eat and drink. Talk about if your enemy <laughs> hungers, feed him. And then he said, but just give me two hours, please. I need two hours to prepare. And they left him for two hours. And during that two hours, he prayed and he prepared his soul. And he said, right, you can take me now. He was brought before the proconsul. And the proconsul said he wanted him to swear that he was loyal to the emperor and say Caesar is Lord. He said, I'll set you at liberty if you'll only just swear. But he added, you'll have to reproach Christ. And dear Polycarp came out with the classic answer, 80 and six years have I served him. And he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and saviour? Later he said to the proconsul, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and after a little is extinguished. But you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Well, this infuriated them. And so they ordered him to be burned at the stake. Now listen to this. It was a Saturday. But the Jews of Smyrna offered to go and collect the faggots for the fire, which was breaking the law of Moses. And the Jews collected the wood on the Sabbath. So hated they this man. This synagogue of Satan collected the wood for the fire. The custom was to nail them to the stake so they couldn't get away from the fire. But he said, I won't run away. You don't need to nail me. I'll stay right here. So they lit the fire. And a strong zephyr wind, that zephyr wind of Smyrna, came and blew the fire away from him. And the flames didn't touch him. And so the proconsul ordered him to be put to death by the sword. And that was it. And Polycarp died. Suffering, says the New Testament, is the mark of a normal Christian. Whoever would live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So it's directly related to how godly you are. And the more godly you are, the more difficult life will become. Well, the city is still there. Izmir has two million inhabitants now, the second largest after Istanbul. Silting hasn't spoiled the port. In 1922, as I've told you, all the Greek houses were burned and the Greeks had to flee from the city. But the church has sprung up again. There is now a lovely church of believers meeting in a basement flat by the edge of the harbour. The sea has flooded the little church out two or three times already, but they just clean it up and pump it dry and they carry on. But they suffer for their faith. It's still the same story in Smyrna, but it's there. Of course, there are some Orthodox churches as well, but you know the tensions between Turkey and Greece, which have split Cyprus in two. And it was the Greek Orthodox Church that was there. But all over Turkey are springing up little groups of believers. But they pay for it. They suffer for their faith. And uh, therefore the church, the letter to the church at Smyrna is still
the letter that speaks to their condition. I was dead and I'm alive. I'll give you the crown of life. Amen.